to In My Shoes. It's a podcast for women of color where we talk about the issues that we are facing each and every day. I am your host, Karen Davis Thompson. And today I have something very special, y'all. You know, this is all about women and we've only had women on the podcast uh, until this point. So we're going to make a little history today. I have two men who are very important in my life joining me today. I have my husband, Ron, and his friend who was also the best man at our wedding, David, and they're joining me today for a conversation about being a black man in America at this terrible time that we are experiencing right now. So I'm going to let both of them say hello and tell you a little bit about themselves. Babe, I'm going to let David go first. So David, say hello and tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Sure. And thank you, Karen, for uh, this opportunity to be on your wonderful podcast. As I've told you before, uh, I'm an avid listener and hopefully the sisters that I have forwarded your links to are are that too. Um, I am a father. I have two wonderful sons. My son, Khalil, uh, is out the house in his own apartment, going to college at Florida International University, my alma mater. Uh, And my younger son is about to make my nest an empty one. Uh, Akil is uh, just graduated from high school, and uh, he was accepted to and going to Georgetown this fall. And uh, he and and his brother are the loves of my life, they're the joy of... uh, of both parents, um, my former wife, um, Michelle Powell is a physician. Uh, Ron and I went to high school with her uh, and Ron and I have known each other uh, since we were four years old. He's actually my longest and oldest friend. We met each other when we were in pre-kindergarten down in Miami at St. Francis Xavier. Uh, I am an educator. Uh, I have been working in higher education for the last 30 years and most recently, uh, I've become the director for a program out at my alma mater, FIU. It's a federal program called College Impact, where I'm working with local high schools and preparing uh, under underserved students in getting the opportunities that college can provide for them. So I'm always happy to be in your presence and be in the presence with Ron. I think we are all a mission oriented and um, it's nice to share some thoughts and ideas about that shared mission. Thank you so much for that, Ron. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, please? I am uh, Ronald Thompson, and of course, I am married to the wonderful host of this podcast, Mrs. Karen Davis Thompson. Uh, we have been married for, what, 23, going on 23 years now. Um, I We are the parents of two beautiful children, Charles and Jalen. Uh, Charles is uh, in his 20s. Uh, he is... Uh, Currently working in uh, the construction industry as a welder, um, very proud of his uh, proud of his uh, accomplishments and his hard work ethic. Um, my daughter Jalen um, is um, 18, 18, going on nineteen. Wow, it's kind of hard to believe that time is passing. Um, but um, I, we they, we have two beautiful, lovely children that we love and care about very much. Uh, as David said. Um, he and I have known each other a great deal of our lives, starting at St. Francis of Xavier, uh, going through middle school and high school. Um, he is my oldest and dearest friend, um, you know, coming up together in Miami, Florida. Um, our, our paths uh, have tracked along the way, and I couldn't have chosen a more uh, a, a greater best man. Um, not only to stand by my side at the wedding, but also to kind of help me guide through 
life um, with marriage and children. Uh, I am an educator. I have been an educator going on ooh, close to 30 years, um, assistant principal. Um, but recently, I have put my uh, name in the hat to try to become a principal. And um, I'm hoping that that journey will uh, lead me to more fulfillment and the guidance of young people. Thank you very much for that. And so we're just going to dive right into this discussion. So obviously, uh, we are all keenly aware of what's been going on in our nation. And I just wanted to start by asking you both how you're feeling um, after the murders that have taken place uh, in the last few weeks and the protests that have followed, especially after the death or murder of George Floyd. Just, just how are you feeling in general before we get into any real specifics? David, I'll let you start. Sure. Um, it's painful. Uh, I, I, I feel a, a number of emotions. I feel uh, fear, uh, worry, especially for my sons. Uh, I feel frustration. Um, I feel sad. Uh, as as Ron uh, definitely knows, um, you know, we're, we're both in our 50s. We're 53 years old. Oh, Ron, you just had a birthday. Um, but uh, as somebody who has unfortunately, and here in Miami, um, who's always been a racially charged city, um, I, I, I watched uh, our city burn in the McDuffie riots of 1980. Ron and I were in middle school. Um, our, our actual graduation got pushed off because we were under martial law, uh, because a black man was killed by cops. Um, I have been at the end of batons. I've been at the end of guns. I've been called every name in the book. Um, and my thought and my hope would be that uh, by the time my sons were young men, this would be behind us. And, and so it's, 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 uh, om it's almost dispiriting to know that both of my sons have already had those type of negative um, escalating experiences and to know that I've had to train my sons on how to act and how to respond and know that private school doesn't protect you. Education doesn't protect you. Um, as I told Ron a, a little while ago, the last time I was on my knees with a bunch of guns pointed to my head was a year and a half ago. And I was wearing my work clothes, my suit, my name tag, and I got my master's degrees and everything. And it just occurred to me that um, I'm never going to be too old to not seem like an enemy. And my children are never going to be too young. And so when I see those things, it personally triggers me because I've had those experiences. I've had the cop's neck, I mean, a, a knee on my neck, on my back. Um, and I feared for my life. And again, I'm, I'm very worried and sad that my, my sons, especially my older one, um, has already had those experiences. And at the same time, at this day, if you'd asked me two weeks ago, I'd have given you a, maybe a different answer, but to this day, I feel more hopeful than I did uh, earlier uh, in May, simply because we're seeing a real sea change. And I know that these things come in fits and spurts, and um, I'm, I'm heartened by uh, the type of changes that are, are happening and, and the discussions that are being had. I know there will be backlash. I ain't going to lie to you. I am, I, I am in, in deep prayer about sending my baby boy to Washington, D.C., to live by himself uh, with no family around him in a predominantly white um, institution around elite level people who make money and privilege. And I know that 
not everybody's going to see a kill the way we see him. And they're not going to hold him as precious as we hold him. And I, I only lean on God, but this is for, for me and for, I guess, most black men, especially extraordinarily difficult emotionally, but we, we, we remain faithful, um, uh, try to man up. And as my son says, let's try to process this pain to something positive. And Ron, how, how about you? How are you feeling? Uh, like David, I feel a number of emotions uh, ranging from uh, frustration, uh, anger, uh, conflict, um, just, a, you know, just they run the gambit. Um, you know, like, like as David said, we both grew up in uh, the South, Miami, uh, and uh, this is not our first uh, experience with the, with the kind of things that we're seeing in and around the country. Um, you know, the McDuffie riots, um, until now were, I wouldn't say long forgotten, but you know, they were of, of far memory from, uh, you know, what, what we experienced, you know, what, I, what I remember, I, they were far memory from me and, you know, these things are creeping up again and they're, they're, they're evoking, uh, emotions in me that I'm having to really pray about and think about, um, you know, my experiences, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't think I've ever, I, to be truthful, I don't think I've ever been put in a position where I've feared for my life, but I have been put in a position where I, I, I didn't really appreciate it. And it made me uncomfortable. Um, you know, there have been at least two or three, in my lifetime that I could, uh, remember. And, um, you know, and, and it's hard not to be upset and angry about those situations and kind of like David, I'm concerned for my children, uh, being out in the world and, and, uh, having to, uh, you know, they're, they're not going to be seen as precious by everyone. Um, you know, um, I, I, I think the world of my son and a lot of people think the world of my son, but everybody's not going to uh, hold him uh, to that same standard or they're going to look at him the same way, I should say. And my concern is that, you know, some harm might come to him because they don't hold him as dear as I do. And, and my son is very precious to me, as is my daughter. She's very precious to me as well. And I, I always want to be protective of them. But the problem is I'm not going to always be there. So, um, you know, like I said, I'm, 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 I'm having a range of emotion from very uh, frustrated anger to confused uh, because I have members that are, uh, I have members of my family that are members of law enforcement. Uh, so again, the other side is conflicting because, you know, I don't, I, I don't think all police officers are bad. I don't, but at the same time, you know, there are some in, within the police department. And, but again, I've got family members that were also members of the police department and that doesn't, they are not bad people. They're the salt of the earth. But again, it's just, it's a range of emotions. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And I, you know, obviously um, your babies are my babies. And so um, I can definitely understand what both of you are saying. I think not so much even feeling that our children are as precious to uh, them as they are to us, but just treating them like human beings, like 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 
children as opposed to as something to fear or to be threatened by. Uh, And so I want to get into a little bit more about um, experiences that both of you have had. Uh, David, I'll start with you where you you were afraid for your life or where you've experienced racism uh, that you're comfortable just sharing with our audience today. Sure. Um, I'm always happy when I hear Ron talk about his experience because um, I've had enough for both of us. Um, I, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you two that were really defining for me. Um, they weren't the first, um, unfortunately they weren't the last. Um, when I was 17, I was a senior in high school. Um, I was, uh, dating a young lady, uh, and, uh, we'd been together almost all of high school and, uh, she had a little bit of the jealousy gene in her and, um, she, uh, she got a little angry about my relationship with the woman I eventually married and had the two kids with. But at the time, that wasn't that relationship. So I went to her house. I tried to talk it out and it didn't end well. So I'm 17. You know, I'm mad. I jump in my car and not 10 blocks away um, from her house and not two miles away from my own. I get stopped by the cops again. And I and, and it was one of the few times I lost my cool and I jumped out the car and I said, why are you always bothering me? And what happened um, thereafter is only God's grace because the, the cop, it was a Cuban uh, American cop pulled a gun um, and shot at me. And the, the white uh, cop, Anglo cop knocked him, uh, knocked his, his gun aside just enough that I got, um, I got flash burn on my face, but I'm still here to, to talk about it. Um, I found myself on the ground, uh, handcuffed. Um, my record looked clean. They saw my little private school card. And the 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 Anglo cop, um, being a good Catholic, you know, Ron and I went to Catholic school, um, uncuffed me, put me in my car and asked me what what, what was the attitude. And it's, it's true. I, I did seem aggressive. I, I will admit that. And I just told him, I just got to argue with my girlfriend about some stuff. And I'm just tired of getting stopped like every other week, it seemed. And he's told me something that, that I never forgot. And it's, it, it remains true. And it, and it, 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 and that's what, this is where my, my adult frustration comes in. He told me that he too had a 17 year old son and that he was, um, he, he was near retirement and that the other cop was relatively new. And he, he was very honest. He said that if, if I want to file, um, a complaint, my mother wants to file a complaint, he gave all the information, but he also said that if I, if I say or do anything that's going to, um, impede in his career ending on a good note, he will lie till he dies. That's exactly the term he used. And he says, but he also understands that what that other cop did was wrong. And he says, I did not sign up to kill people's children. And he says, but here's a reality. And the reality was that he says in the skin that you're in, you can't afford to ever lose your cool. You can't afford to ever seem suspicious. He goes, you were born suspicious. You seem like a good kid having a bad day, but I need you to know that as, as long as you live, as long as you are in America, and as long as you are black, you don't get the grace that my son will get. And um, I thought about that years later when um, my former wife and I 
we're on our way uh, on one of the happiest days of our life where our older son was being born. We're becoming parents. And like I said, Michelle and I went to high school together. We dated through college. Um, we were married for 13 years. We were in the middle of that marriage when we, we had kids. Um, she's a physician. You know, we're, we, we go to our church. We're in the community. You know, we're like, we're the American dream. And I'm trying to get on I-75 in Miramar, which is right next to Miami, and a cop stops me. Okay, maybe I was speeding. But he pulls the gun uh, out because we're black, and he puts the barrel of the gun to Michelle's belly and asks her what's in there. And I, I and, and my mind is reeling because I'm nervous. The baby's coming. She's, she's six centimeters. The contractions are 45 seconds apart. But I once again have to remember what that officer told me is that I don't get to be like other people. I can't be nervous. I can't be suspicious. And, you know, and this podcast is about women for women. And let me tell you, we, we men, we black men, we love you. We, 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 we want to be there for you because you've been there for us and you support us. Um, and, and in a moment where, where a black man should be most a man to protect his wife and his newborn child, I was helpless before a white man with a gun to my son's belly before he even entered the world. And I had to realize that the, the only way I could protect my family is to submit and sure, once he realized she was, quote unquote, really pregnant, he called ahead and we didn't get any trouble until we got, you know, all the way through the hospital. But I had to take the memory of the morning of January 10th, 1999, and I have to excise the part about how we could have died on the highway in order to enjoy the day. And, and so when that same son tells me that even inside of 2020, he's been on the dirt with a gun to his head and the cops are joking about a closed casket funeral um, in front of my house, by the way. He came by to get the mail and and they stopped him because he looked suspicious. So I, I realized that um, these moments, um, they just keep coming. And again, I'm not the most macho man. I'm not an alpha male, but I, I would like to think that I'm here to protect my, my children, my family, Michelle and I have been divorced 15 years uh, now, but we're still best of friends. We're family. Um, I support everything that she does. Um, and and when I when I think about um, my my actual inability to protect our children, um, it, 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 it could be emasculating. And and I, I think that. Um, I, I, I want to live to see a day where this, th these things don't happen, uh, to people and to their children. But, but just those two things the the, and when, and when the cop, um, in the second example, um, when I asked them, was I speeding? Um, he says, yeah, but then he says, but you look suspicious. And I said, what about this look suspicious? He says, you know how it is. And, and so that's usually what the cops say when they finally disengage. They just kind of admit that you just you're just being white black. So so we have to eat that um, in order to survive. And I'm I, and I'm always thanking God when I can walk away from a moment like this. But then I'm always asking God, why am I 53 years old and still having moments like this? And why are my sons having moments like this? And like I said, I've had those experiences over two dozen times of, of, of having, being at the end of a gun with a cop. But when I get stopped, I automatically think that's how it's going to go because 
the majority of the times I've been stopped by the cops and I've been stopped a lot, it's always a gun pulled on me. And so um, I that that's very difficult not to process that there's something wrong with you. I've always been stopped and pulled to the side when I travel via air ever since 9-11, every single time. It's very difficult, even as an adult prayed up man, to not feel like there's something inherently wrong with you that every time you're stopped by authorities, um, they automatically see you as some sort of variable or, or threat. Um, but but those two experiences to me stand out because of of um, how how very close it could have ended life and how clear it was that it was it was my blackness that was the threat and not my behavior, even though my behavior um, might have warranted a stop. Thank you uh, for sharing that. Just hearing it really just kind of brings chills. You know, it's what I always worry about with my son. He's young and driving a, a really nice Jeep that, you know, my worry is that they wonder how he's able to afford it. You know, you're just, as you said, being black is is enough for you to be seen as threatening. Um, it's always definitely a fear that I have uh, for my son and my daughter, but definitely for for him. Um, Ron, yeah, you know, how about you? They, oh, go ahead, David. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, real quick. Um you know, Michelle remarried um, after our marriage and her, her second husband, uh, White Cat, he used to work for Homeland Security. So he, you know, he's a law and order type of guy, worked and lived in Washington. And um, he uh, he treated himself, uh, he got, got into business for himself and a few years ago treated himself uh, to a Corvette, convertible Corvette. And this is when my older son was still in high school. And so he says, hey, um, you want to drive the Corvette for prom? You know, he always was giving him opportunity to drive the car. And he's like, no. And he's like, why not? I had explained, his name is Kevin. I had explained to Kevin. My son's like, I ain't trying to drive no brand new Corvette. He says, cause all that's going to be is just another reason to get stopped. And whenever they were together, right, the, the, the two boys and their stepdad, um, they often would get stopped because uh, Michelle lives in Miami gardens, which is a predominantly black neighborhood because the cops assumed that, my sons were selling him drugs because why would a white man be in there? But the interesting thing is, even though they thought he was in the neighborhood for drugs, he never got treated harshly. <laughs> so so I thought, man, right. privilege is in incredible. Even when they think you're doing something illegal, you still get treated with degrees of respect. But, you know, I would like my son to feel, you know, like any teenagers, to be able to have a nice car, drive a nice car and feel great about it. And both of them... Um, uh, declined to to use their stepdad's car when they had proms and homecoming for the express reason that they just didn't want to uh, have the day in poorly because of that. And, and there's something embedded in the idea that that you start wondering if it's okay for your child to have nice things. You, you know, Charles should be able to have his truck and you not worry about what that means to someone else looking at him drive the truck. He's earned that truck. Absolutely. But it, it scares the daylights out of me. And as, as he, you know, gets the bigger wheels and he's getting it all decked out, I think, oh, God. Um, but, yeah, I, I just have to stay prayed up as a mom because, you know, what else are you going to do? And I don't want him to feel like, you know, you got to drive something that's less inconspicuous, you know, like that's going to help uh, simply because, um, you know, I'm, I'm worried about that. And I'll just share this. And then, um, Ron, I'll let you kind of talk about some experiences you've had. He used to drive my husband's Chevy 
um, before he got the truck, we got the Jeep because once he started his career on construction sites, he needed something pretty durable. And he said that he liked to go to the gym later in the evening when there were fewer people there. And it was the same little crew that would be there every night when he would go. And he pulled into a parking space and a cop like blocked him in behind him and flashed the lights. And so my baby's like, what is happening? All he did was park. And so the cop kind of stayed there. So he's like, well, do I get out? You know what? So he finally slowly got out of the car and the the cop slowly pulled off. So there was an older white gentleman who um, would always be there and he was watching and he said, what was that? So my son said, I don't know. He just stopped me. So he said, yeah, I was paying attention. Not today. We're not doing that today. So um, it was just amazing. Even this older white gentleman knew, yeah, this, you know, this is a nice young man. He just comes here. He works out. He's not bothering anybody. And that was in a Chevy Malibu. Um, And it it really kind of freaked him out. He couldn't figure out. I was like, you know, all I did was park. And when I looked up, he was behind me with lights flashing, you know, and, and, he couldn't figure it's like, do I get out? Like, what is happening? Uh, so I was grateful for that older white gentleman that night. He recognized, you know, that this was weird uh, and was watching over my baby that day. So um, and that, like I said, was in a Chevy. So God forbid now in his Jeep, what we may get. Um, but Ron, talk a little bit about experiences you've had, whether it's been with the police or just I know that um, you attended the University of Florida and that uh, could sometimes be challenging uh, as well at a predominantly white institution before you uh, got your master's at Florida and um, we won't talk about that. Um, so just just discuss a little bit about what uh, some of the experiences are that you've had. Well, my experiences um, kind of like, you know, what David alluded to with uh, his oldest son and his stepdad. Um, you know, my father was a successful uh, business owner in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, which is in northern Alabama. Uh, he ran a Ford dealership for about 15, maybe 20 years um, while I was there. And of course, you know, he wanted uh, his children to take full advantage of uh, of what he did. Um, you know, he I was in school at the time. He didn't think it made any sense for me to drive an unreliable vehicle. And so, you know, he made uh, the the demos or the, uh, the demo cars available to me. Um, so, um, you know, maybe once every six months I would be driving a new vehicle, um, you know, um, from muscle shows Ford. So one vehicle I had, and, and it, it's, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't even like a flashy car. It was a Ford Tempo, <laughs> you know, not not really high on the hijack list or, you know, the boost list of police, I would have to assume. But uh, I happened to be driving to the library with a friend of mine and uh, we were driving down Museum Road, headed towards the library and driving past the museum when some girls were walking down the sidewalk and my friend decided he was going to be funny and honk the horn. And I'm looking at him. I'm just looking at him. It's like, man, don't do that. You know, that's not funny. But as soon as he did that, I have a UPD officer going in the opposite direction who basically takes a U-turn right into the driveway and tails me all the way to the library parking lot and literally pulls two spaces behind me or two rows behind me. Um, once he trailed us to the parking lot and I get out of the car with my book bag in hand, I'm not, I'm trying to show that I'm not flustered. I'm not scared. Um, not, you know, not, I'm not 
I have no reason to run or do anything or be suspicious. But uh, I even went, I was frustrated and I just basically pulled my backpack out of the car and showed him my backpack. It's like, you know, to say that I'm a student here. So whatever reason you're tailing me, it's just, it's false. Uh, there's no reason to tell me for any reason. I, I you know, I don't know. And um, I, he, I don't remember if he pulled off after that, but that, that, is deeply cemented in my mind, but it's not as cemented as another experience that I had when I was in Tallahassee. Um, and my father happened to be, you know, at his class reunion, his high school class reunion. And we had concluded service uh, that, that Sunday at a church that is off of Capitol Circle. And I, uh, you know, my dad had his Thunderbird towed down from Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and he had to use a uh, Ford Bronco to uh, tow it uh, on a trailer. Well, you know, after the service, my dad and my mom, they stayed, and my dad sent me ahead, maybe because I think I had to work that day. I had a job, uh, man, I think I had to go to work. So my dad sent me ahead in the Ford Bronco, and this Ford Bronco is pretty it's pretty nice. Had floor runners. Stands out most definitely. Uh, I'm in a three-piece suit uh, and a tie. You know, I'm not dressed in street clothes, and I'm coming from church. Well, I'm on the Circle K, and it's this is very vivid. I'm on the Circle K. I'm passing the Circle K um, on Capitol Circle, and I'm going back to the apartment that we lived in. And there was a Leon County Sheriff in that very parking lot who pulls in right behind me. And it is at least three or four miles to my apartment complex. This man trailed me all the way from the Circle K to my apartment complex. And would not, he did not, until I made the left turn into that apartment complex, he stayed with me all the way. And I made sure I was doing the speed limit and that I was not, you know, doing anything that would give him any pause to pull me over. And again, it, it, it angered me because it's like, what other reason would you have to trail me? You know, I, I, I just don't understand. And it made me, you know, I, I don't have any uh, proof, you know, any proof, but I mean, I wondered, it made me wonder, had I been in street clothes that involved being in a cowboy hat or whatever, or, or whatever, but certain cap and a different complexion, would I have gotten the same attention? Um, you know, it, it just is very, is very, it was very concerning, uh, very, very alarming uh, to me. And you know, it's it's funny because you know I, I think about this often. I haven't mentioned this to David, you know, in our conversations, but it's really crazy how our children's some of our children's experiences mirror our experiences. Uh, you know, David, you know those stories that David shared with you. Um, I really didn't you know know about until our adulthood, um, and you know I shared similar stories, the same stories with David, but our experiences seem to mirror our, our children's experiences. And that, that is, that is deeply concerning to me. Uh, you know, Karen, you brought up the, uh, 
the Chevy um, incident with Charles, you know, and, and the same concern that you have, I have. Um, you know, one recent, uh, you know, people assume that he shouldn't have those type of nice things uh, and that he hadn't earned those type of nice things. Uh, one uh, instance or one, one situation in particular, we were trying to get rid of the tires because Charles had put new ch tires on his, on his um, Jeep. And he bought and paid for his tires because he works, you know, just like he works to pay for that vehicle. Well, the person we sold the tires to, you know, I mean, I guess he called himself being complimentary, you know, and, and I tried to take it with a grain of salt. But he was like, yeah, he must really be a good kid for him to be able to get that Jeep and everything like that. And it's like, you know, I'm thinking to myself, you, you know, again, you don't know my son. <laughs> my son works hard. He earned everything that he has. So you're making an assumption that we gave it to him or he got it through some other means other than his own means. Uh, you know, uh, he works for everything. He, he, he doesn't, you know, we, we may assist him. But again, he is very good with money. Uh, he saves his money. He looks for bargains. He earns everything that he has. And I just have a problem with people making assumptions about him. Uh, and I'm concerned of what where those assumptions could lead for him. Thank you both for that. Um, and I've, we've asked this question to some of our other guests, and obviously it's been women that we've been talking to. So I pose this question to you all. Why do you think that Black people, Black men especially, are seen as so much of a threat in our country and in our society. What what do you think that's about, um, David? I'll let you start. Sure. It, it actually just it it has historical precedent. Unfortunately, and the three of us are educators, um, but unfortunately, the American educational system um, has glossed over a reality. Um, black people, people of African descent, were enslaved for 244 years. And, and, I, and I think sometimes we have to pause on what that actually means. That, that means that we were not considered human beings. That means that we were considered little more than pack mules. Uh, I, I do genealogy on my maternal side of the family. A number of us are trying to get history. And you know, it's very difficult. And my ninth generation great-grandparents um, is as far back as we have gone thus far. And I, I have a book that has these documents copied that we share amongst our families. And to see my ancestor listed without a name um, below the, the, the cattle, but above the grain, tells me everything I need to know about why we're treated the way we are. If, if you go 200 years, and, and, and again, I've been fortunate enough to track a lot of my genealogy. Um, all of my great great grandparents, all sixteen of them, were slaves in Georgia and Alabama. Um, the the only relatives that I have or uh, ancestors that I have that were not slave were uh, Cree uh, and and Cherokee Indian, and they were displaced. So I, we have found no European ancestry in my particular bloodline. And I would think to myself, 
That means that I come from a people that for the last three to 400 years, white people have been displacing, murdering, objectifying, and enslaving. And so our nation was founded on the idea that we don't count. That And again, it's hard for us to believe that or, or, or inhabit that. We don't want to deal with it. But that's baked into the very fabric of our nation. So when the 13th Amendment um, was passed, and again, this is important to know because it answers the question. It says that slavery shall be um, uh, uh, illegal, unconstitutional, except for um, imprisonment. And what the South did, and we're all sons and daughters of the South, is they criminalized so many things. You know, they called them the black codes. It was illegal to have more than a couple of black people congregate. We joke about that today, but it actually was illegal for the three of us to stand in a public place and, and congregate. We'd go to jail or get a fine. The fines were enormously high, so you couldn't pay them. And then you go to prison. And of course, in prison, you can re-enslave them. It was illegal for preachers, black preachers, to pre preach to black congregations. They had to get permission from the president of the sheriff's uh, office um, to do that. And they were almost never given the permission. So therefore, even hearing the word was illegal. And, and, and so um, we think about um, post-slavery as segregation. That's what most of us think. It was about segregation, but it was about a systemic um, uh, process of criminalizing everyday activities for the sole purpose of creating black convicts. And then once they're convicts, you can re-enslave them. You can lease them out to plantations. So think about that for 155 years, um, black behavior has been um, has been criminalized to the extent that black male becomes synonymous with criminal. And that's even before you get into things like the so-called war on drugs. And again, people want to deny that, but we have an opioid crisis in this country right now. And right now, the majority of the people that are impacted are white people. And we call it a public health crisis. And it is a public health crisis. But when we had a crack epidemic during our college years, um, and the same thing, a bunch of people um, addicted to a drug that was diminishing their quality of life, um, we called it a, a crime crisis. So these white people who are... Um, getting high in trucks and vans. You see that all over the internet, falling out, ODing, their babies are walking around outside naked because their parents are, are strung out on opioids. Um, we, we, we get social services involved. We get doctors and social workers and nurses involved. But when the same thing was happening with crack, which by the way, was brought into those black communities, we put all of those people involved in that process into prison. So you've created a system that everyday life was criminalized. And then in the, in our lifetimes, you, you, you have created dynamics where actual criminality does happen. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to deny that many of our poor Black communities are not rife with drugs and gangs and violence and insanity. But, but if you think about the hundred years before that, where black people could be arrested for simply praying in public, um, you realize that that's what's happened to us. But have you ever thought about what it would mean to be a white person to always hear that black people are either servants or criminals?
They don't take care of their children. They do drugs. So if you're a white person, you're growing up in a world that has has spent the first 200 years over on this side seeing black people as objects and the last 150 years looking at black people as criminals. It is baked in so deeply that white people don't even understand. They have an innate fear um, of not uh, of black people, specifically black men. It's no different than a person who's a, scared of a snake. They can walk past a water hose and they'll jump. And it, that inherent bias is baked so deeply, it affects everything. School Studies say that school teachers who are black, who see equally gifted children, um, uh, will recommend uh, a white kid and a black kid to a gifted program equally well. Because as you know, in the state of Florida, you have to be recommended by teacher or counselor. But a white um, uh, teacher will recommend a black a white student eight times more than a uh, a black student. And, and, and I have gifted children. Both of my children were gifted. And I went through that with my ex-wife, that, that, that we had to fight to get them into gifted. Um, many of my friends have gifted kids and they had to take them out of school because the, 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 the teachers have saw them as threats. We, I have a good friend, you, 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 you know, her, um, Ron and her son, uh, was considered a threat in his school, the only black boy in school. And so they decided to do an observation of the teacher engaging the, the, the kindergarten class. And the little boy raised his hand to ask a question. Um, and she put him in the corner. And then when he said, why am I in the corner? She, she took him out. And then when the principal sat them down and at, they, she didn't know she was being observed. She says he, he, he um, stood up in a threatening manner and was disruptive to the class in a way that I can't, I don't feel safe. So in her mind, this little boy, this beautiful little boy, gifted little boy um, was a threat. And, and then when the mom says, aha, I got you. The principal says, but she won teacher of the year last year. And so he, his privilege and bias toward the teacher didn't allow him to see how she was doing this boy. And the only answer was to pull her son, who is now 10, out of the school. But he's 10 and he's tall and he's thick and he he plays football. And I look at that beautiful boy and, and I know that, that his mom, um, like you, Karen, and like you, Ron, and like me, and like Michelle, are going to have to have the same precautions because many people in this nation who are not black literally have been conditioned to the core to see black people as, as not only different, but black men in particular as existential threats to their safety. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I can definitely agree with everything that you're saying there. I've, I had those struggles. Um, I, even my sister had them with my niece. It was that she was, you know, um, disrespectful because she asked a question. Um, you know, I have older nephews where my parents have had to go to the school when they were younger and he would ask a question or God forbid the teacher got angry with him because she made a mistake on the board. And he said, wait, I don't think that's right. And him bringing that up, he was somehow, um, inappropriate. But when a white student does it, they're inquisitive. They're assertive. You know, they're, yes, they're they're assertive. But when a black child does it, they're disrespectful and threatening. Um, and a, and I, if a black female s says anything, you you know that when no matter what you do, if you assert yourself as a black woman, you're angry. 
Oh, you're angry. Yes, right. I get you're, that. You're always angry and, and, yeah. and men are always threatening. So think about it. So if, if, if you grew up in a world who thought black women are always angry, black, black men are just criminals, um, what does that make black children? Right. So, so at the end of the day, we, 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 they don't see a child when they see our kids running around and whatnot. And that's the kind of, that's the kind of thing that gets Trayvon killed. That's the kind of thing that gets Tamir shot is because they don't see uh, a child. They see the product of angry women and thuggish men. Oh, wow. Yeah. So true. Ron, I see you had your hand up. You wanted to comment. Well, I mean, and I guess this goes into the, what I think about why they see us as threatening, but you know, it's it's funny because we we have to we have to we have to basically be assertive and make sure that we're in standing the gap for our children uh, because, like you said, they're being seen as threats. Um, you know, Karen, I've heard I've I've been perceived as a threat. You know, uh, in my capacity as an educator, uh, I can't tell you how many times I've had a parent. Uh, you know, at, at one of my schools say that you tr- were intimidating or you tried to intimidate my child or uh, you were intimidating to my neighbors or something to that effect. I'm not sure where, I, I mean, I'm not, I, I want to say it's because of the experience of what they have experienced with whatever experiences they have with African-Americans. Maybe they're not, you know, they maybe they are, are accustomed to them being in certain capacities or positions and whatever. And then when we get into certain uh, uh, you know, other positions, then it's like, they're not sure how to handle that switch. <laughs> uh, that's my only guess. I mean, re- I'm really, I'm, I'm struggling with putting my finger on that as well, you know? Um, and, you know, Karen, you and I have dealt with it in terms of our son, you know, trying to uh, stand in the gap because of how he was viewed or how he's been viewed in school. Um, you know, you made it a point to as as a good mother and a good wife to make sure that um, you know the schools knew that I was involved <laughs> with him and as much as you were so that they didn't always see you um, that, that he had a father and there have been some instances where you know they have taken my son to be disrespectful or to be this way or to be that way and you know we have had to say most certainly not our son is not like that but we've had to condition him to uh, respond in such a way that we could stand in the gap for him and they can't have ammunition against him to say that he was being disrespectful or that he was being out of line. Um, you know, and, 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 and it's, it's just a shame that we have to still do that. But again, that's what we as good parents need to do, um, and as David just basically uh, alluded to. Thank you. And and not only did I want them to know you were involved, I wanted them to know we were married because the assumption is that we all come from a broken home, that we're being raised by a single parent and that, you know, no, the dad is nowhere around. Mm-hmm. And so it was important for them to know that. And uh, just to share with the listeners, uh, just what we have to go through when we are um, black parents just trying to raise our children. Uh, my son was in middle school. And um, he had a teacher that we were having a little trouble with and he uh, was out sick and I was checking his grades and he had gotten a zero for a reading assignment that I knew he had turned in. You know, they had to read so much each week. So I emailed her and I just said, oh, I know he turned this in early. You, you, you initialed that you received it, but he got a zero. And she said to me, 
Um, yes, he turned it in early. And so I said, let me see if I'm clear. So he turned it in early and got a zero because he turned it in early. Now I know what happened. He turned it in before she was prepared to get it because it was early. She didn't have a great book. She initialed it and then forgot and gave him the zero. All you had to do was say, oh, I'm so sorry. I can correct that. And I said to her, you know, he's out sick today, but I'm headed your way for a meeting. I'll be in that area. So I will drop off a copy of it so you can see that you did indeed sign it. And so we need to change that because I've never heard of a child getting a zero for turning an assignment in early. And the next day he came home from school and he said, mommy, I don't know what happened with miss. I don't even remember her name, but she started fussing at me telling me that I didn't need you to turn my work in. I need to turn my own work in. And so I sent an email and words are what I do. And it's very difficult for uh, some in white America when you are an articulate African-Americans, you know, it shocks them to their core that you're articulate and black. And I said to her that uh, what we will not do is take out frustration on my son because you're angry at me because you've been caught in putting in some information that was inserted and inputted in incorrectly. And I've asked you to take care of that. So what we will not do is have an inappropriate conversation with my son who I told you was out sick because I've asked you to correct something that you've done wrong. So she was so scared of me. And I, and I said to her, I will be going to the principal and we're going to have a meeting because retaliation against my son is what we will not tolerate. She was so afraid that she had a representative. She had her union rep attend a parent teacher conference because I insisted that my son was going to be treated fairly. Uh, and this was in middle school. So these are the types of things that we as parents have to go through. And David, I see there's something you want to say in there, Ron, you can go next. No, I, I, I'm just, I'm just sighing. It, it's yeah. <laughs> I'm just sighing. Yeah, it, it was. It, yeah, she was. I mean, scared. She had a union rep. I've never heard of that. Ron, you wanted to comment? Yeah, I, I mean, I to come com, comment on that that very uh, experience. It was it was very shocking to me because I got invited into well, not not invited. You asked me to attend. You couldn't attend, um, and it was very. As a father, I, I I've always taken my my fatherly duties very. Um, very seriously. And I, I was very taken aback by that experience because I'm here. I am thinking I'm going into a meeting with the principal and the teacher and I get there and there's a room full of people, <laughs> you know, not only the principal and the teacher, but there was one other teacher besides, I guess the teacher. I think it was the department head. It was the it department, may have been. It was department head and it was, the union rep and uh, who, you know, as you know, interjected into the meeting and wanting to, I guess, cast blame or put it back on my son. And like I said, I was just really taken aback and really wasn't happy with the principal's response as well, because the first, you know, the, the, I, I'm assuming she was anticipating some sort of uh, uh, chaos and uh, began the meeting as such that if uh, it should occur that we will we will suspend this meeting. And I again, I'm a professional. Uh, I work for the same district that you work for. I'm assuming she did not know my history because at the time I was an assistant principal at one of the high schools here in Hillsborough County. And for her to 
you know, go down that road with me, I was not very happy. I was very upset about that, um, that particular uh, experience. And, uh, you know, I even relayed that to my principal at the time. And he was like, I, I asked him, I was like, is this, you know, I'm an assistant principal. I just wanted to know just for sake of knowing, is it unusual to have a union rep in a parent comp- teacher conference? And he looked at me like I had four heads and said that, yeah, that's a little strange. <laughs> um, and when I told him, he said she had representation there. And he immediately said, you should have called me. <laughs> I would have come and been your representative at the time because it was just not, it was just very odd. And because we advocate for our, we're going to advocate for our children. And it taught me a very, as an educator, it's taught me a, a, a strong lesson that one thing I want to make sure that I always do is respect parent advocacy. Right. And and I think that, you know, unfortunately, that may be how you respond. Uh, but unfortunately, a lot of times our black children aren't given that same courtesy, um, you know, in the school district, which is why, um, you know, I had to step in. And the fact that she was going to take it out on him because she was angry with me for bringing something to her attention that she had clearly done wrong. And it could have been a very simple fix. David, is there something you wanted to say to that before we go to our yeah. next question? Yeah, but that speaks exactly to what my earlier point was. See, Ron, you're using terms like children, kids, and parents. Children, kids, and parents are people. And again, it's an uncomfortable fact, but but there are people that don't see us as people. See, what you say only works when people can come to a table together and talk. But see, when the angry B and the threatening N are at the table about their thug uh, offspring, the, the rules are off. It, that, this is why systemic racism coupled with personality is so deadly because the system didn't make that lady trifling. And that's, that's what the word I'm going to use on her. But what the system did, it automatically gave her, um, it, it, it fed to her that your, your beautiful son, right? is somehow in a different category as other kids. So she walked into her job believing that because she was trained from birth to believe that. But then further, you see how the system lined um, up against you too as parents. And so what happens is the system itself is already baked in bias. And so it allows these type of people to act out. So, um, that's and that's how deep the problem is, is even if none of the people and, and someone explained this to me beautifully when I was in college and I never forgot it. They said if if two people are sitting in front of a board game and one person has um, one set of rules and the other person has another set of rules and and the person who benefits is going by these rules and and, and you don't realize that they were told that you're, you have to go by a different set of rules, then when you try to play their game, they get threatened. That's why um, you coming in as an articulate black uh, parent, an educated black parent who is also an educator, it, it, you get the pushback because if you were a white parent, Karen, if you were a white parent, Ron, even if it had gotten to that point, there would be no union representative. The, the, the basic respect of a parent or a, co- or, or a colleague would have taken care of it in the classroom, but they do not see you. And there's not enough degrees you can have in the world um, that's going to have people who decide that we're not um, at the same level as them. 
which is why even something as simple as saying Black Lives Matter is problematic for people because they, they don't hear the two. They don't hear the preface, which is because you guys are doing these things to us disproportionately, we feel like we need to say that Black Lives Matter too. What they hear is only Black Lives Matter or worse for them, that Black lives are superior. And that goes against everything that they believe. That's not saying that everybody you went to school with is a racist, that every white person is racist. My, my second oldest friend is a white dude who lives right up the street from you, and I love him to death, but he lives in a different reality than you and I live in, Ron. And, and so at the end of the day, the experiences that his five children get to have are going to be um, different than the experiences that our four respective uh, collective children get to have. And that's really, really, really difficult. How do you get at the root of what made that situation happen? Because it wasn't, it didn't start with that lady's attitude. It started with an entire system that bends the table against your son and against you as parents. And I would definitely agree with that. And even though I guess you you know that to just hear it in the terms that you put it in, they really do not see us as people. Uh, and, you know, I had two uh, guests last week who are mothers of daughters, and they talked about the adultification of our children, of our girls. And so they're not seen as you know, just a child trying to get their question answered. A parent, you know, it, it, it's a completely different viewpoint, the way we're viewed, what they think of us. Um, and so that's definitely a, a great way to think of it. Yeah, I, I'm sure she thought I was an angry bee. Uh, although I was I was very cool, calm and collected, and my email was very well written. It was just how dare I question her about giving him a zero for turning in an uh, assignment early that she signed confirming that he turned it in. I mean, how dare I not just accept her zero? Uh, and yeah, so but, but Sarah, Palin, Sarah Palin says that that behavior makes you a mama bear. So why, why does Sarah Palin and her people um, get to take the same behavior of protecting, protecting your cub and call it a quality, a positive quality, which I think it is. But then when a black woman does exactly the same thing, which is be a mom, it's considered a negative thing. And, 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 and again, it's hard, it's hard to hold that in your head because nobody wants to walk around feeling that they live in a society where they're not even considered to be a basic human being. It, it, it could, it could break you. So most of us either don't hold that in our head um, or we deny it outright. But unfortunately we live in a system that makes it hard for our humanity to be clearly manifest to people who are not black or who are not living around us which is why many of us have really positive experiences with, with white people, but white, you know, with, with white persons, but we have as collectively um, a negative experience with white people because white persons are, they're just like you and me. They have souls, they walk around, but the system doesn't make it easy for white people in the majority society to treat us or see us um, as individuals first and foremost. And secondly, um, as people with the same, um, same inherent um, qualities that they have. And it's, you know, we, all we want to do is, is be happy, take care of our children, have a couple of barbecues and, and, and hopefully go to heaven. And, and, and you'd be surprised how many people who don't look like us don't believe that those, that, that we share those objectives and, and, and therefore we, that they can't see the shared humanity. They can't see the shared inherent um, the divine plan for all, all of God's children. And so they act accordingly. Um, I just wanted to ask as we 
I kind of get ready to wind down here. Have either of you, and I already kind of know the answer to this. We've talked about this before. Have either of you found that throughout all of what's been going on with George Floyd and, you know, seeing more of the Black Lives Matter and the protests, have you found yourselves learning things about people that you thought you knew really well that have caused you to have a little bit of pause about whether or not they are uh, the people that you thought they were? Have you had to uh, kind of put some people on pause, unfriend a few people on Facebook and social media? Uh, Ron, I'll let you start. Yes, I'd have to say definitely yes to that, um, especially on social media. Matter of fact, uh, you know, I had such an experience last night uh, with someone. Uh, won't call that individual's name out, but um, he tends, you know, as many of our, some of our classmates, I should say, um, hold that opinion uh, about Black Lives Matter and James Floyd and the whole uh, movement that is going on right now. You mean George uh, Floyd? George, George Floyd. Yeah. Did I, what did I say? <laughs> James Floyd. It's okay. I said George. George Floyd. I'm sorry. George Floyd. Um, but um, there are, there are a number of our our classmates that hold opinions of that, and and all they're hearing is uh that you know the you know that we're against the police uh that you know, that we think that black lives matter more so than other lives. And, um, and no matter how much we say, no, that's not the case. We don't think that we're superior. We don't think that black lives are superior, but we do matter as much. And, you know, my, my biggest issue is that you're not recognizing my frustration. You're not recognizing the angst that I have every time my son leaves the house. You are not recognizing the fact that my daughter could get caught up in something at, at very dangerous just simply because. And that's what angers me more than anything. And no matter, no matter how loudly I say that, no matter how much I say that without getting back, back and forth into a spat about you know, Trump or anything else like that, it, it, it just doesn't resonate. So I've found myself either having to put some folks on pause or unfriending them altogether. Um, you know, uh, I, I had a frustrating experience with a classmate uh, the other day because of something that he said. And, I, and I, again, I just want them to understand we're frustrated and yes, we understand that there are there are violent uh, there's violent activity going on out there, and we do not condone that in any way. We do not think that that is a constructive way to deal with the situation. As David and I uh, know very well from the McDuffie riots, we've experienced this before. But we 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 want to please don't just focus on that part focus in on the peaceful protest and what's going on and please acknowledge that so that we can you know so we we can hopefully start talking about solutions but many of them are not interested in that and choose to engage us um, in a negative way or just wanted to stay stuck on that again not recognizing our frustration uh, doing what I believe is called the David Copperfield. It's an illusion. You're, what you're experiencing and what you're feeling are not real. And so I have found myself having to say, you know, for the, 
for the sake of my health and that of my family, I think I'm just going to need to leave you alone. And David has advised me as, 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 as you have, uh, that that's the best course of action. Just leave them alone. Yeah, I agree with that. It, it it can be very difficult. Um, I know both of you. It was was it a predominantly white school that you all attended? Catholic school, were there? Yeah, it was slightly predominantly white. But by, by the time we got there, um, it it was a significant number of Hispanics, um, white identifying Hispanics. But it it was, uh, it was only after we graduated that it it uh became uh, uh largely Hispanic and uh, Afro Caribbean. But oddly enough, though, it, it, it holds a history um, in the civil rights movement. You know, if you go back and look at Curley's uh, uh, history, because, um, you know, they, they were, were, the, were the first school to do some things within that within Miami-Dade County as it relates no, in, to in the state. Now, Archbishop Curley was the first high school in the state of Florida to integrate with black people. First school, public or private. Oh, I didn't realize yeah, that. I, okay. Yes. Yeah. And it's sister school, Notre Dame, which merged while we were going going to school at the time. But Notre Dame and Curley um, uh, integrated in 1960, and they were the first uh, schools, public or pro- private, to, to actually integrate. So they have a long history of integration and the great Betty Wright, the R and B singer Betty Wright, who just made her transition um, a couple of months ago. She's a graduate um, of of um, Curly, so you know we you know we we have some significant um, contributions um, in that school. But uh, I can remember my fresh my sophomore year asking one of my classmates as we were getting dressed for gym how his summer went. I was just being polite, you know, I neither liked him or didn't like him, but everybody, you know. That's what you asked. How was your summer? And he pulled out uh, a, a book and he was showing me pictures of the camp that he went to. And I, I noticed, the, you know, the cross, a red cross and the stuff. And and I'm like, that's a white supreme. And he's like, yeah, my dad's into it. He goes, it's real funny. Teach me to shoot. And I'm standing there going, his dad sent him to KKK camp. And, and, and I, and, and I, you know, he was quote unquote cool with me. But my thought was, What's that guy going to be like in 20 years? And and um, that that's the concern. So so he was cool with the black kid at 14. But if your dad is sending you to KKK camp, he's trying to make you a white supremacist. And I had a, I, I had a similar. Well, I had an experience with, you know, a teammate that, you know, we were out conditioning one day and I'll never forget this. But, you know, we were out running and, you know, he made a comment that he went to Spain. And I'm like, oh, man, how was Spain? And, you know, trying to get a rise out of me. He's like, you know, oh, it's okay. There aren't any niggas there. And I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> you know, so, you know, that <laughs> some folks we obviously, you know, don't associate with, will not associate with uh, for whatever reason. And we kind of wonder. Uh, where they are and what they're doing now, but you know, uh, we we just choose to kind of disassociate ourselves with them. Yeah, but what challenges me is that some of those people that we're talking about, Karen, they're judges. Some of them are senior in police, and I keep up with people. I may not talk to them, and some of the more problematic people that I went to high school with um, are in positions of actual authority. Um, that 
that have and 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 um, some of them I've had opportunity to see where their opinions are, and they, it, it's gotten worse. And again, if you grew up with a racist parent, you're going to grow up to be a racist. And and this is one of the things that we have to deal with too: is that there are ignorant people that we grew up with and around, and and those are the people that we can communicate with um, because they they just don't know. And then there are people who are you know I call benignly racist. They have these these thoughts and it, it informs their opinions and they may not be reachable. Um, and I, I've decided that, that if I'm going to spend energy, I'm going to spend energy on the things I can change. Um, and then there are people who are fundamentally white supremacists. It's a very, very, very small, uh, portion of those people who are, who literally are thinking about, um, ways to make this country, um, this, this idealized white utopia that it never really was. And uh, I, and I can say that um, I haven't personally come across very many of those because why would they even engage or go to school or work with people like us? But unfortunately, many of the people that we grew up in our neighborhoods with, um, went to school with middle school, high school, um, it, frankly, they're racist and, and they prove it um, by their behavior outside of social media. They prove it by their opinions on social media, they prove it by how they respond. Uh, Ron, I have to say, and I do not exaggerate, you're the best man I know. And when you try to engage people um, with compassion and, and empathy and respect um, and, 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 and share with them that some of the things that you, you, you are talking about are not just political abstractions, but actual pain points, uh, a human being who saw another human being would say, you know what, I'm going to stop. There, there, there's a, um, uh, one of our Facebook uh, friends who actually is part of a family I grew up around. They, my grandma, I grew up with my grandmother and we shared a, a, a backyard. So their, their backyard was connected via a short wall to my backyard. And they lived there from my family bought the house in 1969. And so we end up going to the same, uh, uh, K through eight school and we end up going to the same high school. So it's three brothers, one, one that's two years older than me, one, one that's uh, a graduate a year behind me and Ron, and then one who graduated, um, two years behind me and Ron. And I still keep up with them because I, they were my neighbors and, and, and friends the Cuban Americans and their father, unfortunately for the entirety of their, childhood was stuck in a Cuban prison. He was a dissident and he stayed there for over 30 years being tortured by the, the, the Castro regime. And so um, all three brothers are on social media and we communicate. And whenever we have reunions, I always you know, hang out with them. The youngest brother, married an Anglo-white woman, moved to Central Florida. He's Trump this, Trump that. And you know, um, it's, if I didn't know him personally, I would just like, this guy's a white supremacist. And sometimes we get on, we get into it. Um, his brothers are not like that. And then I just tell him this, you know, when you uh, point out to me how it's painful to you, when you see me put out, um, something about Nelson Mandela, because you associate Nelson Mandela with communism and Nelson Mandela once, um, had praise words for, for, for Castro, you notice I never push back. Because despite of what I know about Nelson Mandela, um, um, I know that anybody that supported Castro at any time is supporting a man who was responsible for your father being gone for 30 years and, and torturing him. And so I recognize your pain and out of respect for you as a person, um, I don't push it. And I said, but when I or Ron or others bring up our pain points, you seem not to be able 
um, to to just stop. You have to make your point. And our personal conversation is, I mean, you no harm. I don't see group. But but see, his conditioning, his his current family, his environment influences him. And that's a person that I choose to remain engaged with because of our relationship. And I truly believe that he's a good man who has a bunch of bad ideas. But there's a whole bunch of people that I don't connect with or had to stop connecting with because I had to come to the unfortunate conclusion that they're not interested in a relationship with me or anybody like me and, and, um, or worse that they might mean me harm. And, and I'm only, I'm only in on their feed out of force of habit and it's not good mentally or emotionally or spiritually. And that doesn't mean, you know, I'm a Christian. I'm going to love, you know, God said, love your enemies. He didn't say like them. Um, but it is also wisdom. God gives us wisdom to understand that you, 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 you can't drink from a trough that's poisoned. And unfortunately, some people are infected with the poison of hate, infected with the poison of racism. And they, they are enthusiastically ignorant about people that don't look like them or pray like them or love like them or think like them. And we as a society have to find ways. Cause I think the majority of our, our national society isn't about that. I think the majority of white people aren't about that. Um, if I believed that I wouldn't be living in the United States or I'd be insane. Um, and I, I just believe that most people don't feel the urgent need to act because it doesn't affect them every day. So most white folks don't act against these things because they don't see it and it doesn't affect us. But it, if, and it's, I think it's our duty as parents and as educators and as Christians, I mean, as an, as an Americans um, to try um, to, to educate and win over the hearts and minds of those good people who just didn't understand how bad it can get so that the minority who are about their Nazi utopia um, understand that that's not going to stand in this nation that your ancestors and mine um, helped build and create. Thank you. I think that is a wonderful way for us to end this episode. I want to thank both of you for taking out the time to speak with us today. And um, and just wanted to let you all know if there is anything you want to hear us talk about, you can hit me up at kdt at inmyshoestoday.com. Again, that is kdt at inmyshoestoday.com. That is all the time we have for today. And until we are able to be together again, be blessed.